to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today we are going to get back to an episode on government. And this will begin our trifecta on corruption and conspiracy in government. Now, I do want to address the fact that the past two episodes were out of order. So typically we do three episodes, one government, one money, one education. Then we do a themes episode, then we do a case study, and then we repeat. Well, I accidentally released them in the wrong order. And so the previous two episodes, we had a case study first and then the theme second. So if you noticed that, thought that was weird, that was an accident, but oh well. Contents out there didn't really matter much on the order, so that was that. Now, for this episode, we are going to be covering a lot of information on corruption and conspiracy in government. And I know that this is a topic that a lot of people have a lot of doubt on and people may not believe a lot of this stuff. So what I'm going to try to do is focus a lot on quotes that I have found from people like presidents and historians and things like this so that I can actually present to you some credible sources of this information. And then I will also be talking about it, but a lot of what I will give to you today will be information that I will be reading off that I have found through my own research. And that will be the plan. I will be covering mainly the Fabians, then the CFR, then the Trilateral Commission, then we'll get into the CIA and the intelligence community, then false flag operations, and that'll be the plan. But before I get started with all that, I do want to remind you that there is still a t-shirt contest going on. So if you want to participate, look in the show notes. You can go to the Patreon page, or you can go to the Our Foundations website at ourfoundations.podbean.com. And you can find the details there. Pretty much you just interact with the podcast somehow, share it on social media, send me some feedback, um, whatever you want to do, retweet an episode, it doesn't really matter. Do something, send me an email with your name, and you will be entered into the drawing. Now, I'm going to begin with a congressional report from the 76th Congress. And this was one that I have read the original document, and I've pulled it up, and there is a few sections that I want to read. This is from August 19th, 1940, and it is Jay Thorkelson of Montana that is talking about these things. And I will just go ahead and read what he says here. I'm going to read the first three paragraphs that open up this congressional record, and then I'll read a paragraph that comes up in section two. There's a lot here. I'm not going to get into all of it. He gets into many different articles and papers and books and groups and all this kind of stuff. So you'll get the idea just from the little bit that I will read. So it goes like this, and I quote, Mr. Thorkelson, Mr. Speaker, in order that the American people may have a clearer understanding of those who over a period of years have been undermining this republic in order to return it to the British Empire, I have inserted in the record a number of articles to prove this point. These articles are entitled Step Towards British Union, A World State, and International Strife. This is part one, and in this I include a hope expressed by Mr. Andrew Carnegie in his book entitled Triumphant Democracy. In this, he expresses himself in this manner. 
Let men say what they will. I say that as surely as the sun in the heavens once shone upon Britain and America united, so surely is it one morning to rise, to shine upon, to greet again the reunited states, the British-American Union. This statement is clear, and the organizations which Mr. Carnegie endowed have spent millions in order to bring this about. This thing has been made possible by scholarships, exchange professors, professors, Subsidies of churches, subsidies of educational institutions, all of them working for the purpose of eliminating Americanism as was taught once in our schools and to gradually exchange this for an English version of our history. These organizations were organized to bring about a British Union, a union in which the United States would again become a part of the British Empire. However, this has been upset to some extent by the attempt of the internationalists to establish their own government as an international or world union. And there is, therefore, a conflict between the two. For England wants a British union with America as a colony, and the international money changers want a Jewish-controlled union in order to establish their own world government. Now I'll jump ahead to section 2 where he gets on to the next part I wanted to read. Mr. Speaker, we are now dominated and plagued by various pressure groups that care little or nothing about the United States, as long as they can involve us in the present European war. Some of these groups are well known, others remain obscure, but nevertheless very powerful and effective in their insidious attempts to convince the people of this nation that war is impending. These groups are composed of members who are generally classed as the intelligentsia. I shall not question their intelligence, but if one is to judge them by what they have said and done, their intelligence is not being directed for the greater interest of the United States. Aiding these groups, I believe often innocently, are those whom we may take the liberty of calling their tools and servants. So that's it for that report there. I do want to make a comment that through my research, I have not really found any hard evidence about a Jewish banking conspiracy that's worldwide. So that's something that I have seen many times. I've heard it, but I couldn't really find anything about it. I do have this comment here um, by Thorkelson, and there are specific examples of specific people that are international bankers and Jewish and part of conspiracies and corruption, but not in a broad sense, a Jewish conspiracy, if that makes sense. International banking, yes, and we'll get to that in the finance section, and you'll probably hear a little bit of that through today's episode. But the whole Jewish world conspiracy, I have not been able to back up. But everything else he said is backed up. If you listened, hopefully you have listened to all the episodes in order, because it's a chronological podcast that builds upon each episode. So hopefully you've done that. But a few episodes ago, when we did the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable, the Society of the Elect, that was the goal, if you're a member of that society, was to bring together America and Britain under one union and then to rule basically the whole world. And then that did seem to shift over time into just a one-world government in general, with mainly America or Britain at the head of it. And so not much of a difference, but it originally was a little more patriotic of reuniting Britain and America and then turned into more of a focus on the world government. Now you can see from the congressional report that I just read, he identified these as two separate movements, and they probably were at the time. 
and that was a competing issue more than likely, or it was the same deal working from two different fronts in a more Fabian strategy. I honestly don't know. And you are going to have to think for yourself on this episode because a lot of the things that I'll read and a lot of the things that I'll talk about, you'll get perspectives from different people, from different sides, from different views, and you're going to have to figure it out because, like, for example, if you would have taken everything that I just read, then you would believe that there is a worldwide Jewish conspiracy of Jewish bankers to take over the world. And that's not necessarily true. At least I don't believe so, and my research hasn't found that. But maybe you do more research and find something that I haven't found. I don't know. But the same could be true of other aspects of this. However, you will get the theme. These are all credible resources here and people that I'm citing from. And so I think you'll get the idea. You'll have enough repetition of names that you will definitely have your interest piqued. And there are some things that are kind of undeniable in a sense when it comes to all this stuff. So um, as a side note, randomly, I forgot to mention this. I've mentioned in previous episodes recently that there are chicks, baby chicks, little chickens that are living now in the same place that I record this podcast. So when you hear the chirping, that is our little chickens that have taken over my recording space. And hopefully that doesn't annoy you too bad. Hopefully they're not too loud, but just as a caveat, let you know, heads up, there might be some chirping and just enjoy it. It won't last too long. They're going to go outside soon. So moving on. The first thing I want to do is read basically a whole series of quotes that I have found that introduce the idea of conspiracy and corruption in government from very credible resources and gives you a good overall view of this. So I will start off with some presidents. Let's go with Woodrow Wilson. He said, We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of small groups of dominant men. We stand in the presence of a revolution, which will come in peaceful guise. And then Wilson also said, and I quote, Since I entered politics, I've chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. Then to the next president, this is a famous speech given by President John F. Kennedy. And this section of it goes like this, and I quote, The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically oppressed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our way of life is under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. No war ever posed a greater threat to our security. If you are awaiting a finding of clear and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear and its presence has never been more imminent. 
for we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. And again, that was John F. Kennedy. So moving from a president to a president's wife, we have Edith Roosevelt. And she said, The word establishment is a general term for the power elite in international finance, business, the professions, and government, largely from the Northeast, who wield most of the power regardless of who is in the White House. Most people are unaware of the existence of this legitimate mafia, yet the power of the establishment makes makes itself felt from the professor who seeks a foundation grant to the candidate for a cabinet post or State Department job. It affects the nation's policy in almost every area. She later said, What is the establishment's viewpoint? Through the Roosevelt... Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy administrations, its ideology is constant, that the best way to fight communism is by a one-world socialist state, governed by experts like themselves. The result has been policies which favor the growth of the superstate, gradual surrender of United States sovereignty to the United Nations, and a steady retreat in the face of communist aggression. The next quote will be from a New York mayor, New York City mayor, from 1922. His name was Highland, and this is a very good quote here, where he gave a speech condemning basically the same things everybody else says. He says, and I quote, The real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy legs over our cities, states, and nation. To depart from mere generalizations, let me say that at the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil interests and a small group of powerful banking houses generally referred to as the international bankers. The little coterie of powerful international bankers virtually run the United States government for their own selfish purposes. They practically control both parties, write political platforms, make cat's paws of party leaders, use the leading men of private organizations, and resort to every device to place in nomination for high public office only such candidates as will be amenable to the dictates of corrupt big business. These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of the newspapers and magazines in this country. They use the columns of these papers to club into submission or drive out of office public officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful, corrupt cliques which compose the invisible government. It operates under cover of a self-created screen 
and seizes our executive officers, legislative bodies, schools, courts, newspapers, and every agency created for the public protection. Moving on to some new people, we've got Justice Felix Frankfurter from the U.S. Supreme Court for a short quote. He said, The real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise their power from behind the scenes. Then we've got one from General Douglas MacArthur. Quote, I am concerned for the security of our great nation, not so much because of any threat from without, but because of the insidious forces working from within. Then we have one from Across the Pond. In June 2002, the former royal butler, Paul Burrell, revealed to the Daily Mirror in London that Queen Elizabeth II had told him, quote, There are powers at work in this country about which we have no knowledge. The next quote will come from H.G. Wells. You will hear his name pop up again. And this is from his book, The Open Conspiracy, where he openly talks about the conspiracy to create a one-world government and basically all the things that he wanted to do. He was actually part of the group, the Rhodes Roundtable Group, Society of the Elect. He was a Fabian. So yes, his name will pop up again. But in his book, he says, and I quote, The open conspiracy, as consisting of a great multitude and variety of overlapping groups, but now all organized for collective, political, social, and educational, as well as propagandist action, they will recognize each other much more clearly than they did at first, and they will have acquired a common name. The character of the open conspiracy will now be plainly displayed. It will have become a great world movement as widespread and evident as socialism and communism. It will largely have taken the place of these movements. It will be more. It will be a world religion. This large, loose, assimilatory mass of groups and societies will be definitely and obviously attempting to swallow up the entire population of the world and become the new human community. He later writes, The establishment of the economic world state by the deliberate invitation, explicit discussion, and cooperation of the men most interested in economic organization. It is not a project to overthrow existing governments by insurrectionary attacks, but to supersede them by disregard. It does not want to destroy them or alter their forms, but to make them negligible by replacing their functions. It will respect them as far as it must. What is useful of them, it will use. What is useless, it will efface by its stronger reality. It will join issue only with what is plainly antagonistic and actively troublesome. A later quote is, The open conspiracy will appear first, I believe, as a conscious organization of intelligent and in some cases wealthy men, as a movement having distinct social and political aims, confessedly ignoring most of the existing apparatus of political control, or using it only as an incidental implementation in the stages, a mere movement of a number of people in a certain direction who will presently discover, with a sort of surprise, the common object toward which they are all moving. In all sorts of ways, they will be influencing and controlling the ostensible government. Again, that was H.G. Wells. 
the next quote, and this will be our last one for this very long introductory section. This is from Carol Quigley, which we quoted a lot and used him a lot in the Cecil Rhodes episode. Uh, One section, and I believe I also read this in the previous episode, but I'll read it again because it fits very well here. He says, and I quote, There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates, to some extent, in the way the radical right believes the communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret record. For the first time in its history, Western civilization is in danger of being destroyed internally by a corrupt, criminal, ruling cabal which is centered around the Rockefeller interests, which include elements from the Morgan, Brown, Rothschild, DuPont, Harriman, Kuhn-Leb, and other groupings as well. This junta took control of the political, financial, and cultural life of America in the first two decades of the 20th century. So you have probably noticed some names that have popped up multiple times. We hear the name Rockefeller multiple times. We have heard about bankers, the international banking community, multiple times. And in this previous quote, he specifically mentions Rothschild and Morgan and Kuhnleb, all these are international bankers. And so we get this idea that there is a group of people or multiple groups that work behind the scenes and really do pull the strings of governments and of whole societies and nations, and that even leaders, heads of state, admit that this is the case. And a lot of them are fairly uncomfortable with this, which is totally understandable. So let's get into some of these specific groups, and we are going to start with the Fabians. I have discussed the Fabians before. I think it was in the Modern Political Theory episode. I'm not positive on that, but you should be at least aware of who the Fabians are, so I'm not going to go into detail about that. But basically, their goal is to create a worldwide socialist state, and that's what they're trying to do and have tried to do from the beginning. And with the Fabian Society, you will notice that their logo is a wolf in sheep's clothing, and this definitely defines their style and what they are known for. They are known for infiltrating and influencing behind the scenes. They want to get in and get into different influential parts of a government and get in on both sides of that government. Like in America, you've got the Democrats and Republicans. They would want people that both are on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. And then they work from within to push the initiatives that will gradually bring a nation and a people towards their ultimate goal of having a one-world socialist government. So I'm going to read a few things that I have found in my research of the Fabians to give you an idea of this group. Fabian Society members included H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, Sidney Webb, Beatrice Webb, Annie Besant, Graham Wallace, Tony Blair, and Australia's Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. 
Fabian Society members founded the British Labour Party, the London School of Economics, the International Court of Justice at The Hague, and were largely involved in the creation of the UN and the League of Nations before it. In the United States, some organizations heavily influenced by Fabianism are the Ford Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Stanford Research Institute, the Carnegie Endowments, the Aspen Institute, the Wharton School, and RAND. So in 1895, Sidney Webb founded the London School of Economics, which became a branch of the University of London. Among its major contributors were the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie United Kingdom Trust, and the Mrs. Ernest Elmhurst, the widow of J.P. Morgan partner Willard Strait, who founded the socialist magazine New Republic. Later in 1899, the Fabian Essays, which is the most noted work on socialism, was written by seven influential members of the society and edited by George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw has an interesting quote that I would like to read. Uh, He said, and I quote, Under socialism, you would not be allowed to be poor. You would be forcibly fed, clothed, lodged, taught, and employed whether you liked it or not. If it were discovered that you had not character and industry enough to be worth all this trouble, you might possibly be executed in a kindly manner. But whilst you were permitted to live, you would have to live well. So, yeah, that's their goal. We have this world socialism, and they have an influence in many probably institutions that you recognize, London School of Economics, the Wharton School, Rand, Ford Foundation, lots of different things, the League of Nations, the UN, International Court of Justice, all these different groups. Um, And you, again, see the connections between the Rockefellers and the Morgans, And we see the Carnegies. I don't know if they've come up yet, but they definitely will continue to come up over the next few episodes. And again, we see the same names, the same people, all working behind the scenes with roughly the same goal, this one world socialist government, pretty much, with, of course, these elite and intelligent people that are experienced enough to run it, because they should. That's what they believe. So, moving on to the next group is very interesting. This one is the Council on Foreign Relations. So if you really start digging into this subject, specifically in the United States, you will definitely be led to the Council on Foreign Relations many, many times over and over again, because it seems that everything stems from the Council on Foreign Relations. And pretty much all of the groups that I will discuss that have come around since the Council on Foreign Relations was established have some sort of root to the CFR. And I'll call it the CFR or the Council on Foreign Relations. That's the same thing. So the first thing I want to do is read a quote from Carol Quigley again. He said, At the end of the war of 1914, it became clear that the organization of this system had to be greatly extended. The task was entrusted to Lionel Curtis, who established in England and each dominion a front organization to the existing local roundtable group. This front organization, called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, 
had as its nucleus in each area the existing submerged roundtable group. In New York, it was known as the Council on Foreign Relations and was a front for J.P. Morgan and Company. In fact, the original plans for the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations were drawn up at Paris. Now, as a side note, and to just kind of explain a little bit here, the history of the Council on Foreign Relations does go back to the Paris Treaty right after World War I, so... And I've mentioned this name before, Edward Mendel Howes. He was part of this Cecil Rhodes Roundtable group, the Society of the Elect, and he has been called by some as a kingmaker. He was the one behind Woodrow Wilson. He was his most trusted advisor. He was the one that ran his political campaign, and he was behind a lot of Wilson's ideas. He wrote a book, and I've mentioned this before, so I won't go into the details, but in his book, he presents the idea of a League of Nations, of a national income tax, which we didn't have at the time, of a central bank, which this was before the Federal Reserve System, and many other things that came out of the Wilson administration. So he was basically if nothing else, pushing Wilson towards these goals and whispering them in his ear and was very successful in getting them implemented. So we have those ties. Well, what happened? Well, he did get Wilson to present the idea of the League of Nations at the Paris Treaty Conference, and many of the nations were open to this idea. They actually liked it. They agreed to it. The problem was that back in America, he had to get approval to join this new League of Nations, and the American people would not approve it. So America didn't make it in. It was a big disappointment. When Wilson left and the peace treaties were over, you had Edward Mendel Howes. He was still there, and you had a lot of these international bankers. We have representatives from the Rothschilds and the Morgans, of course, the Rockefellers, and they all met in Paris and had a meeting where they tried to figure out how they were going to get America involved in this League of Nations, because overall their goal was, again, to create a one-world government, bring everybody together, and of course the international bankers were the ones that would finance and have all the power in this government, and like I said, Edward Mendel Howes was part of the Society of the Elect. He was also a Fabian. You have all these ideas that are working together and ideologies working together. And what they determined is that they would have to set up some sort of institution in America that would work with foreign relations and they would work with policies. They would work with putting out ideas to the American public. And through this, they would be able to kind of steer America towards being open to the League of Nations or at least something like it so they can get this one world government idea actually going somewhere because America was not having it. America did not want to give up any sovereignty. That's why they originally became a sovereign nation was to get out from under that and right away, starting with the Constitution, that was starting to get pulled out from under them. But what ended up being decided was that They would take the roundtable group that did meet in America, there's already one established of the Society of the Elect, and around that group, they would build up a group of people that would 
call themselves the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, there were very many J.P. Morgan-associated individuals in the core group and in that roundtable group and therefore in the Council on Foreign Relations, but then they brought in many professors that were... Uh, many of them had gotten grants and gotten subsidies from the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation, so there are a lot of ties there. But basically, they created the Council on Foreign Relations. The goal of the Council on Foreign Relations is to basically promote a one-world government. And of course, same ideology as everything else. So that's the idea there. Now, I want to read one more quote here. This is from Richard Harwood of the Washington Post. The membership of these journalists in the council, however they may think of themselves, is an acknowledgement of their active and important role in public affairs and of their ascension into the American ruling class. They do not merely analyze and interpret foreign policy for the United States. They help make it. And he's talking about journalists that were in the Council on Foreign Relations because the Council on Foreign Relations is mainly made up of bankers, industry leaders, journalists, and politicians. So you've got all of it. You've got politics, you've got corporations, you've got the banking interests, and you've got the journalists. And then you also have some professors as well. So you cover all your bases. You've got you know everything we talk about here, government, money, education. You've got it all covered. And that is the Council on Foreign Relations. To give you an idea of basically who specifically makes up the Council on Foreign Relations, I can name a few people that you might recognize. There have been many presidents and vice presidents. You've got uh, the older Bush, you've got the Clintons, you've got Obama, and there are basically every foreign defense and finance minister that has been appointed has come from the Council on Foreign Relations. The majority of the chiefs of staff and commanders of the military and of NATO come from the Council on Foreign Relations. Pretty much all of the national security advisors, CIA directors, UN ambassadors, Fed chairmen, World Bank presidents, and directors of the National Economic Council come from the Council on Foreign Relations. You have many people in Congress, many people in the media, like I mentioned, journalists, as well as some very famous actors and some CEOs of media corporations. You have some prominent academics. I mentioned professors. Specifically, these will be in the areas of economics, international relations, political and historical sciences, and journalism. You also have many executives from think tanks, universities, NGOs, and Wall Street, and many of the key members of the 9-11 Commission and the Warren Commission that investigated JFK were from the Council on Foreign Relations. So I mentioned these different groups, and they will come up again. You have the CIA, which we'll talk about again in this episode, the UN, probably talk about again. In the next episode, we will bring up the Federal Reserve and the World Bank. And so, yeah, all these groups come up. They're all connected, and you will recognize these as they continue to show up. So... You have the former chairman of the CFR, High Commissioner for Germany, co-founder of the Atlantic Bridge, World Bank president, and an advisor to a total of nine U.S. presidents. This man is John J. McCloy, 
And he bragged publicly one time about the CFR handpicking politicians. And he said, and I quote, Whenever we need a man in Washington, we just thumb through the role of the council members and put through a call to New York, which is where the CFR's headquarters is. So, yeah, basically just said, you know, we need somebody. We go to the Council on Foreign Relations and they give us somebody. That's how it works. Hillary Clinton made a comment in July of 2009. She said, We get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to be told what we should be doing and how we should think about the future. And she was referring to moving to an area that is right up the street from the Council on Foreign Relations headquarters. And so she will be able to walk down there and basically get her orders is what she's saying, which basically is the way it works. Uh, The Clintons, as I said, were members as well. You have an interesting quote from Rear Admiral Chester Ward. He was retired U.S. Navy and a CFR member for 16 years, so he does know what he is talking about. He said, The main purpose of the Council on Foreign Relations is promoting the disarmament of U.S. sovereignty and national independence and submergence into an all-powerful one-world government. So basically what we've been saying. We've got uh, Anthony Sutton, who said, CFR members are not involved in a conspiracy and have no knowledge of any conspiracy. However, there is a group within the Council on Foreign Relations which belongs to a secret society sworn to secrecy and which more or less controls the CFR. CFR meetings are used for their own purposes, i.e. to push out ideas, to weigh up people who might be useful, to use meetings as a form for discussion. So that should give you a rough idea of the Council on Foreign Relations and its influence. Basically, anytime you look into any of the people that I will be mentioning in the next three episodes, four episodes, five episodes, however long this is that we talk about corruption and conspiracy, you will probably 90% of the time find a connection to the Council on Foreign Relations. And if you are overseas and looking into this kind of stuff, specifically in the UK, you will probably find your connections with the other group, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And there are similar organizations that were started basically by the same people in the same way for the same purpose in many other countries. You've got Australia and all over Europe and all over the place. So the next bit that I wanted to talk about is mainly the Trilateral Commission. So this is another group that has a lot of influence, and it has many similar names. So we've got David Rockefeller as a founder, and this was all set up by Brzezinski, who we will hear from many times over again. And he was a Rockefeller advisor who was a specialist on international affairs, and he was later President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. He left Columbia University to organize this group, the Trilateral Commission, and with him were Edwin Reischauer, professor at Harvard and United States ambassador to Japan. We have George Franklin. He was an executive director of the Council on Foreign Relations. We have Max Konstam of the European Policy Center, Robert Bowie, the Foreign Policy Association and director of Harvard Center for International Affairs. You have Marshall Hornblower, 
He was a former partner at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. We have Tadashi Yamamoto, Japan Center for International Exchange. You have William Scranton, former governor of Pennsylvania. And we have other founding members such as Alan Greenspan and Paul Volkner, who both later headed up the Federal Reserve. So again, you see a lot of the same things. You'll start noticing schools as well. We'll get to that in the education section. But if you start noticing Yale, Harvard, Stanford, it's not just because these are known as top-notch universities. There are many connections that go back, and you will recognize this as we go. So I want to read another fairly long section that I found when I was doing research. I couldn't really bring out any specific quotes, and it just made more sense to go ahead and read it so that you get the full idea. This does go beyond just the Trilateral Commission, but it covers all the stuff we're talking about here. And so I'm just going to read this whole bit because it was very good. It was written by James Perloff, and I will just go ahead and start. He wrote... When Jimmy Carter ran for president, he said, The people of this country know from bitter experience that we are not going to get changes merely by shifting around the same group of insiders. And top Carter aide Hamilton Jordan promised, If after the inauguration you find Cy Vance as Secretary of State and Zbigniew Brzezinski as Head of National Security, then I would say we failed, and I'd quit. Yet, Carter selected Vance as Secretary of State and Brzezinski as National Security Advisor, and the same group of insiders had been shifted around, and Jordan did not quit. Carter's administration was dominated by members of the Trilateral Commission, which had been founded by Brzezinski and David Rockefeller. In 1980, when Ronald Reagan was campaigning against Carter, he protested. I don't believe that the Trilateral Commission is a conspiratorial group, but I do think its interests are devoted to international banking, multinational corporations, and so forth. I don't think that any administration of the U.S. government should have the top 19 positions filled by people from any one group or organization representing one viewpoint. No, I would go in a different direction. Yet, after his election, President Reagan picked 10 trilateralists for his transition team and included in his administration such trilateralists trilateralists as Vice President George Bush, Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger, U.S. Trade Representative William Brock, and Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Yet the entire North American membership of the Trilateral Commission has never numbered much over 100. Roosevelt added that this group's goal is, quote, a one-world socialist state governed by experts like themselves. David Rockefeller, the longtime chairman and now chairman emeritus of the CFR, acknowledged the role of the establishment in trying to lead America in the one-world direction in his 2002 book, Memoirs. For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents such as my encounter with Castro to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. 
one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I am proud of it. So again, that was David Rockefeller himself. Despite what Americans were told, the post-war Marshall Plan was not invented by General George Marshall, though he did announce it in a 1947 Harvard commencement speech. The Marshall Plan was dreamed up at the at a CFR study group with David Rockefeller as its secretary. Marshall was simply selected to announce the plan because, as a general, he would be perceived as politically neutral and help garner bipartisan congressional support for the plan. Unknown to the public, Marshall Plan funds were circuitously routed by John J. McCloy, appointed U.S. High Commissioner to Germany, to Jean Monnet, founder of the Common Market, which evolved into today's European Union, a microcosm of world government. McCloy returned home to become chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1953. The tragic Vietnam War was run almost entirely by CFR members. William P. Bundy of the CFR drafted the Tonkin Gulf Resolution before the now-discredited Tonkin Gulf incident even took place. Bundy's father-in-law, Dean Acheson of the CFR as well, as a leader of a senior team of advisors nicknamed the Wise Men, persuaded Lyndon Baines Johnson to dramatically escalate the war beginning in 1965, and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara also CFR, helped develop the rules of engagement, e.g. preventing the Air Force from attacking critical targets, that guaranteed the war's disastrous prolongation. This generated a huge slide to the left among American college students. When Bundy left the State Department, David Rockefeller appointed him editor of the CFR's journal Foreign Affairs, and McNamara, one of the leading architects of the Vietnam War debacle, became president of the World Bank. Republican Senator Barry Goldwater called the commission David Rockefeller's newest cabal and said... It is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the United States. Jimmy Carter was a member of the commission handpicked to be president after meeting with Brzezinski and Rockefeller at the latter's Terrytown, New York estate. Carter filled his administration with CFR members and trilateralists. Indeed, Brzezinski noted in his memoirs that, quote, all the key foreign policy decision makers of the Carter administration had previously served in the Trilateral Commission. So that is the end of the article by James Perloff that I wanted to read. Uh, just a few comments here. You do see the Council on Foreign Relations pop up quite a bit. We mainly have the Trilateral Commission. You heard many names that you probably recognize. George Bush, Paul Volkner... Just all kinds of Rockefeller and Brzezinski. You heard John J. McCloy again, Barry Goldwater, just all kinds of people that you are going to continue to hear over and over again. He mentions the Marshall Plan, which a lot of those funds did end up going to what became the European Union. And that whole debacle was pretty corrupt, but that would take a whole episode to go over that, and we are not getting into that. But research that if you're interested. That's very interesting how those funds were actually used and who they went through. We also have the Vietnam War mentioned in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. 
And I will probably mention that again later on in this episode when we talk about false flags. I will just briefly mention that again. So we basically have the same story. And I will go ahead and do a few more much shorter quotes. So let me read just this brief description from Wikipedia of what the Trilateral Commission is. It simply says that the Trilateral Commission is a non-governmental, non-partisan discussion group funded by David Rockefeller in July 1973 to foster closer cooperation among Japan, Western Europe, and North America. Now, this is what it is on the face of it. Now, I looked up who was part of the Trilateral Commission, who was running it for each one of these groups, and I did that right before this episode. I did not find that research anywhere in my research, so I just looked it up myself and found that there were some connections that seemed to jump out right away that were very easy to find. I just clicked on the three names, and of course there were connections. So, we have currently Jean-Claude... Please forgive me as I mispronounce many of these names, but he is the French representative of the European side of things, and he was the president of the European Central Bank, the governor of the Bank of France, he was on the board for the Bank for International Settlements, and I know we haven't talked about these much, but once we get into the financial episode, I guess next episode, you will hear me talk about central banks and the Bank for International Settlements. Those will come up, I guarantee you. So that is the European person. The person on the side of the United States is Megan L. O'Sullivan, and she was the Deputy National Security Advisor. She was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So both of those, as we get into the intelligence community as a whole, there are many connections there, and she was there as well as CFR. We then have the Japanese representative, Yasuchika Hazagawa, and he was the vice president and later the president, and later on the board of a large pharmaceutical company. He was also part of a group called Keizai Doyoke, maybe, which is a private organization founded in 1946 with the goals of being business-focused and having the business community guide and steer the economy of Japan and bring it into a more globalized system so that we have international trade and these types of things promoted. So although I don't know much about this group, I don't really know anything about the group. I tried to look it up, couldn't really get much information. A lot of it's in Japanese, so I didn't go there. But just the fact that it was created shortly after the war, same as many of these other groups, and the goal is basically globalization and world trade, that has a lot of ties here to the other themes. So again, I don't know about this group, I don't know about this man, but we do have a connection with a giant international pharmaceutical company and this group focused on international business. So yeah, they all kind of tie in together with these same ideas and ideologies, of course. So I'll wrap up this section on the Trilateral Commission with three more quotes. First, from Barry Goldwater, again. 
This was from his 1964 book, No Apologies. He said, and I quote, The Trilateral Commission is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the United States. The Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. Next, we have a quote from David Rockefeller himself, the founder, and this was in an address to a meeting of the Trilateral Commission in June of 1991. He says, We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the bright lights of publicity during those years. But the work is now much more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. So basically here Rockefeller is saying that all of the media outlets are on their side and not um, putting forth the things that they're talking about, even though they're there at the meetings. And so, yeah, there are connections with the journalists, which we saw in the CFR as well, that they have many top journalists and CEOs of media co- corporations that belong to their group as well. Yeah, again, same things over and over again, same ideas. And yeah, we have David Rockefeller himself saying this, that the goal is a world government, and we're getting pretty close. It's a very sophisticated process, and that's where we're going. The final quote is also from Rockefeller. I read a section of this earlier, and I'll just repeat it here just for emphasis. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists, and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I am proud of it. So that's the man that created the Trilateral Commission and was part of the founding of the CFR and the Federal Reserve and many of the groups we are talking about. Yeah. The next group to cover is the CIA, and the CIA was created in 1947 through the National Security Act, and what that did is it changed the Department of War, which was where the Army was, and the Department of the Navy, and they changed that into the National Military Establishment, and this had three branches. It created the Air Force, It was headed by the Secretary of Defense, and its focus was, at least for the CIA portion of this, which was created in this act, the focus for the CIA was for overseas intelligence and covert operations. So this was, the National Security Act was a pretty big deal. It's actually a fairly small document and act in general, but it did a lot. It totally restructured how the military and covert operations were organized, and it created the CIA. Now, we did have some covert operations that were going on during the war, and they stopped at the end of the war because they were for wartime use, but there was a need and a perceived need 
to have this type of organization in existence. And this is how it got through. I did read in one source that one of the motivations for creating the CIA was the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on this show before. That was actually not a surprise, according to Washington. Washington knew all about it. That was revealed during the court-martial of the people that were in charge over the base at Hawaii, and they were accused of being at fault, not being prepared. Well, they demanded a court-martial. During the court-martial, it came out that there were multiple ambassadors, there was a double agent, there was the fact that we had broken the Japanese naval code. There are all these different sources, and that without a doubt, Washington knew that the Japanese were bombing Pearl Harbor at least as of the morning of, and they didn't do anything about it. Well, actually, we did have all of our best ships and newest ships and aircraft carriers that were out on a training mission that day and just happened to not be around. So they might have done something about it, but they definitely did not stop the attack, and I thought it was kind of funny to see a reference to this so-called surprise attack on Pearl Harbor as an excuse for creating the CIA. So that was interesting. But now the way the CIA is set up, they are actually not required to disclose their employees or their assets. They're not required to disclose their spending or really any of their activities. They are completely covert. They are off the books and they pretty much do what they want. It's the mentality that someone has to do these things, these things that have to be done. No one wants to do them, but they have to be done, and the CIA is that group to do that. There is this mentality of secrets and infringements and collateral damage that this kind of stuff is necessary, that there's no way of getting around it. There are just some dirty things that have to be done in order to keep the world a safe place for humankind. And, of course, the CIA are the ones that can take care of that since they are off the books. People don't know about them. They can do the dirty jobs, and they're kind of off the scenes, which is good. That way the people don't have to be a witness to that. And uh, one other interesting connection is that Many of the directors over the CIA and the intelligence community in general, as I was looking through lists of the people that have headed up these organizations, many of them came from the CFR and a few from the Trilateral Commission. So again, we have these connections that seem to repeat very often. So I wanted to read a few things here. And the first would be a quote from President Harry Truman. He said, for some time, I have been disturbed by the way the CIA has been diverted from its original assignment. It has become an operational and, at times, a policy-making arm of the government. So he saw that it was getting more power than was expected and was actually dictating policy oftentimes, which is definitely not what it was supposed to be doing and still is not supposed to be doing that. So... Let's move on to a few of the actual events and cases that the CIA has been involved in. I was not able to get a detailed list of regime changes. That was my first go, but I ended up finding 67 cases of the CIA doing a regime change in another country. And so... Obviously, I'm not going to cover 67 cases of regime change, but we have done it all over the world, and it happens all the time, 
and I'm sure there are more than 67, but that was how many that I found at least, so it's a little ridiculous. But that's part of the CIA's job, is to do regime changes, to overthrow... It depends on how you look at it. Either they are overthrowing dictators that are mistreating their citizens, and so the CIA is giving power back to the people of that country and promoting democracy, and that's what they're doing. Or... You could say that the CIA is ousting a head of state that is not very friendly with America or might be friendly with America's enemies, and so we oust them and put in somebody that is friendly to our causes. And that is a legitimate reason as well. They're they're probably both have some weight and have some influence. So the first thing I want to mention is about um, money and how they deal with money. And I have one example here that I found an article about the National Endowment for Democracy. And this one was fairly interesting. I'll just go ahead and read a section of this article. It says, In 1983, the National Endowment for Democracy was set up to, quote, support democratic institutions throughout the world through private non-governmental efforts. The president for the endowment at the time, Carl Gershman, said, quote, We should not have to do this kind of work covertly. It would be terrible for democratic groups around the world to be seen as subsidized by the CIA. We saw that in the 60s, and that's why it has been discontinued. We have not had the capability of doing this, and that's why the endowment was created. And Alan Weinstein, who helped draft the legislation that established the National Endowment for Democracy, said in 1991, quote, A lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. So, in effect, the CIA has been laundering money through NED. In multiple ways, NED meddles in the internal affairs of numerous foreign countries by supplying funds, technical know-how, training, educational materials, computers, faxes, copiers, automobiles, and so on, to selected political groups, civic organizations, labor unions, dissident movements, student groups, book publishers, newspapers, other media, etc., NED typically refers to the media it supports as independent, despite the fact that these media are on the U.S. payroll. So that was an interesting case of basically the CIA funneling money through an organization called the National Endowment for Democracy, which sounds really good. It sounds like they would do good things for the world and spread democracy to these poor people that are getting oppressed by their horrible dictators. And yeah, it turns out that a lot of it is just basically laundered CIA money to influence certain groups and factions and countries. Another interesting quote I found about the CIA. This one's from writer Eula Biss. In the case of Pakistan, the CIA actually used a fake vaccination campaign to try to locate Osama bin Laden. So now vaccination is associated with espionage. And that was another incident with the CIA. Um, I'll mention another vaccination issue later. But the next thing I wanted to talk about was the Gulf of Tonkin. So when the Vietnam conflict was in its infancy, we did have ships that were in those waters. And what happened to escalate and get us to send a lot of troops to Vietnam was something called the Gulf of Tonkin Incident. I listened to an interview from a pilot that was there at the time, and he was flying in the air at the time that he heard guns going off and the radio start lighting up. 
and the ship was reporting being attacked by the Vietnamese. And so this pilot flew around and tried to find the enemy ships that were firing on his men to take him out or at least damage this enemy ship. Well, as he flew around, he couldn't find them. And he kept radioing back, what's the coordinates? Where are they? And he couldn't really get any straight answers and never found them. So he flew back to the ship, landed. He said he went inside and there were a lot of the commanding officers that were on the ship and they kind of had a weird look, a little bit of a smirk on their face and basically told him not to worry about it. You know, you're done with your duty you can go back to your bunk. And so he did. And when he woke up the next morning, he was told that we are now at war and we're going in. And he said, why? What happened? And they looked at him and were like, well, you know, we were attacked yesterday. And so we got to go in. And uh, that was an interesting account. He actually ended up being a POW in Vietnam and then wrote a book afterwards when he got out and revealed this information. And then years later, there was a document that was released that showed that this whole Gulf of Tonkin incident was a CIA operation. And it was a false flag operation that was intended to make it look like we were attacked and give us an excuse to escalate the war and go to war officially. And that's what it was, and that was official, and that was declassified. I mentioned false flag operations. I've mentioned that multiple times. I've never defined that, so if you're not quite sure what a false flag operation is, it's just the idea that an event, usually some sort of violent event, occurs but it is made to look like it was perpetrated by someone that it wasn't. So basically, in this example, the U.S. made it look like the Vietnamese attacked them, and in reality, nothing happened. So that that was kind of a false flag scenario in a way. Oftentimes, something actually does happen, and it is then just blamed on a different country or a different group and used as an excuse. This is why Germany invaded Poland in World War II. They used the excuse that they were attacked by some Polish soldiers and they crossed over the line. And so in order to defend Germany, they had to invade pretty much. And it turned out that that was actually a false flag operations. That was, um, that was the Germans that were responsible for that, not the Polish. And they used it anyway as an excuse, and that's why they went in. So this happens a lot. There are many records of this, and we'll go on to mention a few more. But first, I want to get back to doing a few quotes. So let's do one by Dwight Eisenhower about the military-industrial complex as a whole. He said, and I quote, Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. So he gives the warning of this growing military-industrial complex. He's seen that there is this large armaments industry that has come up. It didn't used to exist, but now it does. He does see there is a need for arms, but he's warning that this 
does have a huge impact on society as a whole, on the government, and he's warning that we need to keep our eye out for this. Now, another quote I want to mention is an interesting one. This is from Hermann Goring, and he was a German politician, military leader, and leading member of the Nazi Party. He was actually the founder of the Gestapo and the head of the Luftwaffe. He went to trial after the war, and during his trial, this is a little bit of the transcript of what was said there. And this is Goring speaking first. He says, Why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor, for that matter, in Germany. That is understood. But, after all, it is the leaders of a country who determine the policy, and it is always a simpler matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. And then the person that is interviewing him, Gilbert, says, quote, There is one difference. In a democracy, people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives. And in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. And then back to Goring, quote, Oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. So he kind of reveals how things work here, that the leaders are the ones in charge. They're the ones that decide whether or not a nation goes to war, and the people can kind of be led like sheep. All they need is an excuse. And that is where false flag operations usually come into play. This is the excuse. He mentions that you just have to tell them they're being attacked. Well, that's what a false flag operation is. That is showing an example of, hey, we were attacked here. And then you use that as the excuse to retaliate and to do something about it. And the people are dragged right along willingly because they want revenge or they are scared and want security or whatever it is that you stimulate in the people of a nation. And so they go right along with it. Now I'm going to go back to a few specific examples. And these are all different articles and reports and cases specifically that talk about different false flag operations and CIA activity. So I'm just going to read through them. There's a few of them here. And you can listen in on some of the things that the CIA is a part of. This first example is from 1962. The proposals called for the CIA or other U.S. government operatives to commit acts of terrorism against American civilians and military targets, blaming them on the Cuban government and using it to justify a war against Cuba. The plans detailed in the document included the possible assassination of Cuban immigrants sinking boats of Cuban refugees on the high seas, hijacking planes, blowing up a U.S. ship, and orchestrating violent terrorism in U.S. cities. Several other proposals were included within Operation Northwoods, including real or simulated actions against various U.S. military and civilian targets. The operation recommended developing a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area and in other Florida cities and even Washington. The proposals were 
rejected by John F. Kennedy. The desired result from the execution of this plan would be to place the United States in the apparent position of suffering defensible grievances from a rash and irresponsible government of Cuba and to develop an international image of a Cuban threat to peace in the Western Hemisphere. So Operation Northwoods was a plan that was never enacted, but it did get through the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA was involved and it went through pretty much every single branch and person all the way up to the president before it got denied and Kennedy said, no, we're not going to do that. But it did involve many things. As you heard me read there, there's blowing up planes and attacking U.S. cities and doing terrorist operations and blaming it all on Cuba and using that as an excuse to go in. That is a false flag operation. And these documents were later declassified, and so this is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. This did happen. At least these plans were drawn up, and they made it all the way to the president's desk. Now, Violence is not the only way that the CIA works and influences things and eh, deals with problems and instigates issues. I want to read a quote from Nick Colather. He is a historian of the CIA at Indiana University. And he said, quote, In a situation where principle and loyalty don't work, money is sometimes the only tool the CIA can use to get cooperation. And that is something that they do a lot. They do use money and facilitate deals and business and things like that in order to motivate certain political leaders and groups to do what they want them to do. If they can get a group to make a bunch of money through maybe drug deals or something, then maybe they could convince that group to try to overthrow the government locally there and go into power, then that group would be eh, more friendly to U.S. matters and would probably have an open ear to specific CIA agents that they had been in contact with the whole time. Let me read another event here. The next example does cover drug trade. I'll go ahead and read the report here, or a little excerpt. Larry Collins' sources alleged that, quote, During the Vietnam War, U.S. operations in Laos were largely a CIA responsibility. The CIA's surrogate there was a Laotian general, Vang Pao, who commanded Military Region 2 in northern Laos. He enlisted 30,000 Hmong tribesmen among the surface of the CIA. These tribesmen continued to grow, as they had for generations, the opium poppy. Before long, someone, there were unproven allegations that it was a mafia family from Florida, had established a heroin drug refinery lab in Region 2. The lab's production was soon being ferried out on the planes of the CIA's front airline, Air America. So that's an interesting one, dealing with drugs. The next one. In October 2013, two former federal agents and an ex-CIA contractor told an American television network that CIA operatives were involved in the kidnapping and murder of DEA covert agent Enrique Camarena because he was a threat to the agency's drug operations in Mexico. 
According to the three men, the CIA was collaborating with drug traffickers moving cocaine and marijuana to the United States and using its share of the profits to finance Nicaraguan Contra rebels attempting to overthrow Nicaragua's Sandinista government. A CIA spokesman responded, calling it ridiculous to suggest that the agency had anything to do with the murder of a U.S. federal agent or the escape of his alleged killer. Now, another mention of the Contras in this next one. And this comes from an investigation that was headed up by John Kerry. The 1989 report was known as the Kerry Committee Report. And the report concluded that, quote, It is clear that individuals who provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking. The supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. And so the next one that's a little later, in 1996, Gary Webb wrote a series of articles published in the San Jose Mercury News, which investigated the Nicaraguans linked to CIA-backed Contras who had smuggled cocaine into the U.S., which was then distributed as crack cocaine into Los Angeles and funneled profits to the Contras. His article asserted that the CIA was aware of the cocaine transactions and the large shipments of drugs into the U.S. by the Contra personnel and directly aided drug dealers to raise money for the Contras. Now you see there are many connections here to the Contras and the CIA, and that is a very big, very in-depth story that spans a long time period and many different operations, lots of drug smuggling and money laundering, And if you really get into it, you can get all the way to the Clintons and the Bushes. And it gets very interesting. But basically, there is definite CIA involvement with the Contras, and they were involved in the drug trafficking. I also read an interview with a pilot that did fly drugs, and he admitted he flew drugs knowingly from Nicaragua to the U.S., and it was under the CIA operations there. And so because of that, he was able to fly a small plane directly to the U.S., not have to go through customs or anything, and that's how they smuggled the drugs in. So that was kind of interesting. Now, the next one is also a very interesting one. This is Project MK Ultra, And I'll go ahead and read the summary here. Experiments on humans were intended to identify and develop drugs and procedures to be used in interrogations in order to weaken the individual and force confessions through mind control. The project was organized through the Office of Scientific Intelligence of the CIA and coordinated with the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories. The operation was officially sanctioned in 1953, was reduced in scope in 1964, further curtailed in 1967, and recorded to be halted in 1973. The program engaged in many illegal activities, including the use of U.S. and Canadian citizens as its unwitting test subjects, which led to controversy regarding its legitimacy. MKUltra used numerous methods to manipulate people's mental states and alter brain functions, including the surreptitious administration of drugs, especially LSD, and other chemicals, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, verbal and sexual abuse, and other forms of torture. 
The scope of Project NK Ultra was broad, with research undertaken at 80 institutions, including colleges and universities, hospitals, prisons, and pharmaceutical companies. The CIA operated through these institutions using front organizations, although sometimes top officials at these institutions were aware of the CIA's involvement. So this is another one where official documents were released later on, and it came out that this was officially a CIA operation. There were plenty of rumors going around at the time in the 60s and 70s, but this was officially Um, released as being a CIA operation later on. One interesting little note that I saw is that part of the documents that now exist and were released include a letter from one of the scientists that was operating under the CIA. And he was writing to, I think it was another scientist, and he mentioned that they had a project where they were able to control a dog through a brain implant by remote and were able to make it run, stop, and turn on command. That may give you an idea of the broad scope of the experiments, but you heard that they were doing plenty of horrible things to people, not always willingly, things like sexual abuse and torture and injecting them with LSD and all kinds of stuff. So that was the next one. The final specific operation that I wanted to go over is that of Operation Gladio. And Gladio is a code name for the clandestine stay-behind operations of armed resistance. And this came out through some investigations in Italy over some car bombings, some terrorist bombings. And through this investigation, it was revealed that there was a clandestine unit that had been armed and trained by NATO, and it was operating doing terrorist activities. And when they looked into this even further, I believe it was a local sheriff at first that started looking into this, and it turned into, you know, a very big deal. But they further found out that there were secret armies in more than 15 different countries, mostly in NATO territories and some in neutral territories. So I've got a, an account here from historian Daniel Genzer, and he says, Secret Army Command Center, labeled Allied Clandestine Committee, was set up in 1957 on the orders of NATO's Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. This military structure provided for significant U.S. leverage over the secret stay-behind networks in Western Europe, as the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe throughout NATO's history, has traditionally been a U.S. general who reports to the Pentagon in Washington and is based in NATO's Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. According to former CIA Director William Colby, it was a, quote, major program. Coordinated by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, these secret armies were run by the European Military Secret Services in close cooperation with the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and British Foreign Secret Service, Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, also M16. They trained together with U.S. Green Berets, British Special Air Service, and these Clandestine NATO soldiers with access to underground arms caches prepared to fight against a potential Soviet invasion and occupation of Western Europe, as well as the coming to power of communist parties. 
The clandestine international network covered the European NATO membership, including Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Spain, and Turkey, as well as the neutral European countries of Austria, Finland, Sweden, and Switzerland. Now, the next aspect of this comes from André Moyen. He is a former member of the Belgian Military Secret Service and of the Stay Behind Network. He said that Gladio was not just an anti-communist, but was for fighting subversion in general. He added that his predecessor had given Gladio 142 million francs, which is roughly $4.6 million, to buy new radio equipment. So it was definitely well supported. The next account comes from Vincenzo Vinciguerra, and he was a far-right terrorist linked to Gladio and currently serving a life sentence for the car bomb murder of three policemen. He said, and I quote, The reason was quite simple. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state to ask for greater security. This is the political logic that lies behind all the massacres and bombings which remain unpunished, because the state cannot convict itself or declare itself responsible for what happened. So the man responsible for one of these sets of bombings says that it was something that was done officially by the government, but covertly and behind the scenes, and that is why there were so many other massacres and bombings that were completely unpunished, and there was no one convicted for it, because he said that the state was responsible, and of course they can't hold themselves responsible, and they can't let it get out that they were responsible, and it just happened to be that in this bombing in Italy, this man was caught and someone figured it out and that investigation revealed everything that was going on. And so officially, it has been recognized and admitted that there were these stay behind armies that they did get funded and trained. And they were given orders by NATO, by the CIA, by British intelligence. And all this stuff has been admitted by multiple countries. However, As far as I can tell, it hasn't officially been admitted that they were involved with attacks on civilians, except for this specific case in Italy with this car bombing. That is the only official source I can find where it was found that they were responsible for committing acts of terror against citizens. And the idea, at least according to this man, was that it was to bring the civilians to a point where they demanded more security and they wanted more government and more help. And please, state, come save us. And it was the state itself that was doing it. So, yeah, that's kind of the way these things work. Now, I don't want to do any more, really. There were a few others. I'll mention two of them very briefly. Uh, One was in February 2014, there was a phone conversation that got leaked, and this was between the Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and the U.S. Ambassador to the Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. And what they do is they discuss a coup in the Ukraine, and they're having a conversation about it. And this recording was leaked by Russia, and it went public and went viral and Plenty of people heard it, and it was released. However, when the news coverage and media coverage came out, it was all about the fact that 
one of the people, it was this assistant secretary of state, Victoria Nuland, had dropped the F-bomb and said, I think, F the EU at one point. And that's what got all the media coverage and all the focus and the fact that the U.S. was planning a coup in the Ukraine to get someone that was anti-Russian, pro-U.S. in charge and in power and never really got mentioned all that much, which is usually how these things work. Um, There was the issue similar to this with the Clinton administration and when there were investigations back in Arkansas for drug trafficking and money laundering, and Clinton's name did come up, he was in charge at the time, he was involved, and as this started to come out, all of a sudden, Monica Lewinsky shows up, and of course all the media coverage is on Monica Lewinsky, Clinton did get impeached, and it was for Monica Lewinsky, and you pretty much never hear anything else about the money laundering and drug trafficking that he was directly involved in. And one of the Bush brothers was involved with that, too, and that didn't really come to anything either. The final one I'd mentioned, another one on vaccines. I don't want to read the whole thing here. I've got it, and I was planning on it, but this is long enough. But basically, there's this thing called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And this was a study that took place between 1932 and 1972 by the U.S. Public Health Service. And... What they were trying to do is figure out how syphilis worked and untreated syphilis, what the results of that would be and the effects of that on a person. And they basically took 600 African Americans and out of those 400, well, 399 already had syphilis and 201 did not have it. What they did is they went ahead and infected, infected the 201 that did not have syphilis, so now they all had syphilis, 600 people, and they did not treat them. And they didn't tell them that they weren't being treated. They actually told them that they were providing them with free health care from the government. Look at us. We are helping out you poor people. And instead, they were infecting them with syphilis and making sure that they did not receive any treatments. This was even after it was found that there were treatments for the disease and they were not given any. Penicillin would have basically successfully treated the syphilis, but even after this was found out, they were not given it because the whole point was to study what would happen if they weren't treated. And so this was a very interesting issue. This is something that you may think of when you think of why these crazy anti-vaxxers don't want the government injecting them with government-mandated shots. Well, there is a history, and this is not the only time, that the government has, under the guise of free health care and mandatory health services, actually done harm to individuals, citizens specifically. Another group that we haven't mentioned much so far is the NSA. So we talked about the CIA, and now I do want to give an example from the NSA. And the NSA is another intelligence agency. They are more focused on data collection, especially cyber nowadays. And there is a very good example that I'm sure many of you have heard of about the NSA spying on American citizens and many others. Well, the way this all started was back before 9-11, shortly prior, there was an operation that was going on where they were developing this project called Operation Thin Thread. And what this was was a way to analyze pretty much all communications data. 
and they had a prototype. It was a working prototype. It was in beta. And one of the very key features of this specific program was that it had built-in privacy protections. So they were not able to see the personal information of American citizens specifically. And if they found links to terrorism or some other investigation and they needed that personal information for their investigation, they would have to get a warrant. And then if they could get that warrant, then they would be able to unlock the encryption for that specific bit of data and they could get that information. But in general, all of the data was encrypted and there were privacy protocols in place. So it was a constitutional program because it was not infringing on the privacy of any individual citizens and linking specific citizens to any of the data. It was just large metadata with no specific names or identities attached to it whatsoever. So that was the first program. Now, about three weeks prior to 9-11, this program was completely shut down. And In its place, the NSA funded a brand new program called Trailblazer, and Trailblazer was pretty much the exact same thing. It analyzed all communications data, and it brought all this together, but it had one key feature that was different, and that was that it was lacking this privacy protection protocol that encrypted personal information, and so this would have been a unconstitutional program. And when this decision was made, there were a few people that spoke out against it. Uh, Specifically, William Binney and Thomas Drake were some famous people that spoke out. They were a part of the original program. They were in the NSA, and they spoke up to their superiors about this, saying that it was immoral, that it was completely wasteful, and that they already had a working program. So why are we doing this? And they pretty much got shut down. Now, not only did they get shut down, they also got raided by the FBI. Everybody under suspicion of questioning the program got raided by the FBI. Now, there were at least two people that leaked some information to the press after they couldn't get anywhere through their superiors and through official channels. And so this just escalated the tensions. There were more raids, there was more harassment, and some people were blacklisted and weren't able to find jobs in their field at all anywhere. And there was even an espionage charge that was laid against Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake was one of the whistleblowers that was a part of the program originally. And what happened was when the FBI raided his house, they found a lot of files related to some of the projects he was working on. And these files were actually not classified. He had actually been told to keep as much information as he could because of all the issues going on and the legal battles and things like that. So he was told, keep as much of this information, the unclassified bits at least, as you can on your person and keep copies of it and store that so that we can have that for court cases and things like that. Well, what happened is when the FBI raided his house, they found these files, they questioned him, and he tried telling the investigating officer who did have clearance to know about these programs, and he tried telling him about the programs, about how it was illegal, it was unconstitutional, and you know immoral, not like they really cared much about that part, but it was illegal and unconstitutional, but they didn't want to hear anything about it. They basically just wanted to take him down. And what happened was they then classified the information 
that was in the files that he had at his home. And so even though they weren't classified to begin with, now they were. So then they charged him with espionage and said he had classified information at his home, and this was, of course, illegal. Now, what ended up happening is Drake knew that his phone was being tapped and they were listening in. He called one of his colleagues and basically explained to them what was happening and told them how the FBI had no case and that this is how it was going to play out. Then it would come out about this unconstitutional program and how they framed him and set him up. And he laid out all this stuff and that he had all these records about how all this went down. And sure enough, shortly after that phone call, they dropped all charges. He ended up with a misdemeanor of some kind and I think did some community service. And that was it. And it all went away. So anyway, that's just a little side story about some of the whistleblowing activities that were going on. But the most important aspect of this was that after investigations, they found that the NSA actually had all the information they needed to know about the 9-11 attacks prior to the 9-11 attacks. And yet, obviously, they did not get stopped and nothing was done about it. So, yeah. The other person that I'm sure you have heard of before is Edward Snowden. Now, he is very related to this. He worked for the NSA and the CIA as a private contractor. And through a series of events, he ended up releasing information and classified documents from the NSA specifically about many of their data collection programs and things that were going on. There's a whole lot of information that was dumped by him, and it was basically very damning to the government organizations. And what it showed was that the government was spying not only on people worldwide, which I guess people would assume, but also on American citizens. And not only were they spying on them, they were listening to, into all their communications, their emails, they were reading those, their phone calls, they were listening in on those, text messages, everything. And not only were they listening to it and reading it, they were storing it. So they had these giant databases of all this personal information of American citizens that was stored and they could just pull it up at will. And this is very unconstitutional and very illegal, but this is what they were doing. Now, when this information first started to leak out and the press first got wind of this, when a few of these whistleblowers let a little bit of the information out, the government basically tried to tone it down and get control of the situation. You had one man, General Clapper, who specifically lied to the Senate Intelligence Committee under oath that they were spying on American citizens. And he said, no, we were not spying on American citizens. And yeah, that turned out to not be true. The other high-ranking official was president at the time, Barack Obama. And he came out with a press conference and answered one question relating to this as everything was breaking, and he basically just lied about the extent of the program. He said, look, yes, we are collecting data. Yes, we are monitoring communications, and we have to do this to fight terrorism, but we are not doing this domestically. We are not doing this with American citizens. We are not revealing any personal information. And he basically played it down like, yeah, there's a secret program going on, but it's for your own good. We need it. And it's really not breaking any laws. It's very constitutional and it's good for you. There's nothing to be worried about. Well, shortly after seeing this was when Snowden released a video of himself and released a lot of the files and the whole story broke loose that 
yeah, they were spying on American citizens. This was a lot bigger than they were pretending it was, and it was a very big ordeal. Now, I've mentioned two programs, both Trailblazer and Thin Thread. The other one that was very popular when all this was coming out was Prism, and that was specifically directed towards internet traffic, but that was another basically spying program by the NSA that did basically all the same things where it monitored traffic and communications and stuff. So I was talking with someone today, and this came up, and they had said, well, you know, that sucks that they monitor everything we do, but, you know, it's a good thing they do it. And actually, I've done some research into this, and not only me, but there were actually many investigations into these programs, especially after the Snowden leaks and the other whistleblowers and 9-11 and all this stuff. And so I gathered up a little bit of information from the results of these investigations. And I'd come across most of this in my general research and basically found that it was not very effective, this spying at least. But um, I wanted to get some more concrete evidence of that. And so I pulled out a few small quotes and paragraphs that explain basically what they found when they looked into these programs. Now, these were looked into by Congress, and they were looked into by multiple government agencies, as well as some independent investigations. So, I will go ahead and start reading now. One of the reports said this, An in-depth analysis of 225 individuals recruited by al-Qaeda or like-minded group or inspired by al-Qaeda's ideology and charged in the United States with an act of terrorism since 9-11 demonstrates that traditional investigative methods such as the use of informants, tips from local communities, and targeted intelligence operations provided the initial impetus for investigations in the majority of cases— while the contribution of NSA's bulk surveillance programs to these cases was minimal. The next section I'll read talks about more of this. It says, Edward Snowden's leaks about the scope of the NSA's surveillance system in the summer of 2013 put government officials on the defensive. Many politicians and media outlets echoed the agency's claim that it had successfully thwarted more than 50 terror attacks. ProPublica examined the claim and found, quote, no evidence that the oft-cited figure is accurate, and quote. It's impossible to assess the role NSA surveillance played in the 54 cases because while the agency has provided a full list to Congress, it remains classified. Also, the NSA has publicly discussed four cases and just one in which surveillance made a significant difference— that case involved a San Diego taxi driver named Basali Molin, who sent $8,500 to the Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab. But even the details of that case are murky. From the Washington Post, quote, In 2009, an FBI field intelligence group assessed that Morlin's support for Al-Shabaab was not ideological. Rather, according to an FBI document provided to his defense team, Morlin probably sent money to an al-Shabaab leader out of, quote, tribal affiliation and to, quote, promote his own status with tribal lit elders. Uh, another group of people to cite here are Senators Udall and Wyden. 
and they said they saw no evidence that the NSA programs had produced, quote, uniquely valuable intelligence. In a joint statement, they wrote, quote, General Alexander's testimony yesterday suggested that the NSA's bulk phone records collection program helped thwart, quote, dozens of terrorist attacks, but all the plots that he mentioned appear to have been identified using other collection methods. And that's all the results that I will read right here, but you get the idea that it is not universally accepted, even according to official government investigations, that these surveillance programs actually do much good. It shows that there may have been one case that they have concrete evidence that these surveillance programs did stop terrorism, and that was this donation of $8,500, but then it turns out that well, it probably wasn't motivated by terrorist ideologies, eh, so it's a little questionable. Other than that, the millions upon millions of data points that have been collected worldwide as well as on American citizens has not produced any concrete evidence of stopping terrorism or indicting people for criminal activity. So let's wrap up everything we're discussing here today. This has been a long episode. The... Division of knowledge is fairly important. So for all of these groups and all of these examples, most people involved are not aware of any corruption or conspiracy that's going on at all. Most people involved are just doing what they think is best. They're just doing their job. They're just doing whatever. They are not a part of it. There may be a division of knowledge that lets a few people in on a few specific aspects, but there's only a very small group that is ever going to be in on the whole thing. There is only a, an extremely small group that is actually in charge of things. And we saw this with the Rhodes Roundtable groups. That's the way they worked. They had circles within circles within circles, and each of the circles didn't really know about the circle above them. And we saw the same thing with the CFR. Um, I read the quote about the guy that was talking about how there is a small group that runs the CFR and they pretty much run everything. And this was an admiral that had been in the CFR for, I believe, 16 years. And he was talking about how most people are not part of this ruling group, but there is a small core ruling group that basically push all the ideologies and all the policies and make all the decisions for the CFR as a whole. And so we see that this division of knowledge really helps. And with that, leverage is something we've discussed before, where all you need is a few key positions. You need a few key people, a few key events, a few key motivations, and you can really have a huge impact on whatever it is you are trying to have an impact on, usually society as a whole, but that is done through certain groups and companies and things like that. And you can leverage money is a very popular one. We talked about the crony capitalism and getting contracts and things like that, and the military industrial complex that um, we heard a quote from a president on. Money is often something that's used. We see leveraging of politics as well, where you have issues like the green movement for the timber industry. That's a political issue. You've got things like gay rights. That is a political issue. And you have heard many companies that have been praised and many that have been vilified for how they treat homosexuals and transgender people and that kind of stuff. It's the leveraging of a political idea 
and they are leveraging that against a company or a politician or a group of people. And this can be done oftentimes. You can leverage contracts like we talked about before. You can leverage ideologies in general, like a rise of nationalism or anti-establishment or uh, a rise of an ideology of the working class over those rich, wealthy aristocrats, whatever the case may be. All you need is this leverage. The positions on a board of directors is a good example where if you can get maybe three seats on the board of a major international corporation, you can control major aspects of that corporation by just having three people get on that board. And that's not impossible if you're a group like the CFR, the Trilateral Commission, or you know any other of these large groups behind the scenes. So we can see how this stuff could play out and has played out in the past. We see similar ideologies continue to pop up over and over again. We had in the Rhodes Roundtable groups the idea that these elect people are the elites and that they should run the world. We want this one world government, a socialist government. They were big on focusing that on America and Britain and getting them reunited and that aspect, which we have not seen repeated. But the overall ideology of a one world government, more of a socialist government with an elite group running things behind the scenes, really matches up with the Fabian strategy of Again, a one-world socialist government with an elite group rolling things behind the scenes. They want to get in and kind of infiltrate and do things quietly. That's what Rhodes was wanting as well. The CFR, wow, they actually have the exact same goals. They want a one-world government, uh, globalization. This is a small group, relatively, of people that have a huge influence and impact on policy and on different things like this, we've got the Trilateral Commission, well, same thing, globalization, and you see these things just keep repeating over and over and over again, and we are going to continue to see this as we get into the monetary aspect, and we get into education as well. You will see these same ideas, these same ideologies, these same Individuals and names keep popping up over and over. The Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Rothschilds. You will see this over and over again. And this is just the way the world works. So this is the world we live in. And it is very helpful, beneficial, good to be aware of it. To know how things work. To know who has been behind many of the turning points in society and pushes towards certain ideologies and political movements. You need to be aware of this stuff. And by being aware of it, you are going to be more able to catch things as they come up in the news or politicians giving a speech. You might catch something that you wouldn't have caught before because now you're aware of the background. Now you're aware of some of the things that go on behind the scenes, some of the players behind the scenes, some of the ideologies. You might perk up at the term globalization or the Council on Foreign Relations or the Rockefeller Foundation or just different terms like this might pique your interest and get you to look into it a little more and a little more critically knowing this background information and being aware of this. So let's wrap this up with our normal 
links and announcements. We've got a free t-shirt giveaway if you participate. All you have to do is interact with the podcast, send me an email, and you will be entered to win a t-shirt. Again, there are not very many people that have been entered, so you have pretty good chances of winning a free t-shirt. So you can do that if you like. You can follow us on Twitter at FoundationsPC. You can send me an email at any time at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. I will read it and I will get back to you. And I might even include something about it on an episode, depending on what your comments or questions or criticisms or desires are. So feel free to send me an email. Feel free to go to the website that is ourfoundations.podbean.com. And that's where I have the resources, the different books that I've read and authors that I have gotten resources from and podcasts that I have listened to. Basically, a lot of the resources that I get my information from. I've got an outline for season one laid out there. I've got the details on the t-shirt contest. There's all different kinds of stuff on there. You can go to the website. You can stream the podcast from there if that's easier than your podcast player. Speaking of your podcast player, please click the stars. Click however many stars you want to rate this podcast on your podcast player, and that really helps. Giving us a rating is a very big deal, and it is very helpful, and there are multiple ratings, and leaving a review is even better. If you want to take a few seconds to write a quick review, that would be very appreciated as well. So I think those are all the different things. If you are willing and able to support financially, then the Patreon page would be the place for that. That is patreon.com slash ourfoundations. And there are some benefits there. You get some exclusive content and some different access and more input and that kind of stuff. So check that out if you're willing and able to do so. That would be extremely appreciated. And I do want to say thank you very much for those who have already done so. And that's it. So I'm out of here. Peace. Thank you for listening.